I think there's been growing concern within the fishing industry for some time about what we're calling the spatial squeeze. The worst case scenario is we will lose close to 50% of our potential fishing ground. I mean, the reality of the past is that the, the fishing industry was realistically not involved in any part of the process until it was too late. You know, there has to be much greater ability for co-location. We just don't have enough room for everything. It's government, it is DEFRA, it is the OMO, and it is the Crown, and it's keeping onto those bodies who actually make the difference at the beginning. Once you get to the point of dealing with a developer, most of the biggest decisions are already made. Do we need to convert that into what the energy developers talk about? They talk about how many likes they're going to keep on at home in the winter months. But we as a fishing industry need to remind people of how many mammals we're going to feed with highly nutritious, low carbon source of protein from the ocean. Good day all and welcome to another Fathom NFFO collaboration episode and this is the fifth episode that we've teamed up with Barry Dees from the National Federation of Fishermen's Organisations and it's been great having Barry on as a co-host for the last few episodes and we've covered all things from fisheries industry science partnerships, the joint fisheries statement, we took a deep dive into the world of sea bass and the early stages of the fisheries management plan. Thanks to DEFRA for coming on to speak about that. And this time around, we pick off another major issue, which is all things spatial squeeze. The NFFO released a report earlier this year, which builds some very concerning scenarios for all parts of the UK, as there is an ever-growing demand for space within the marine environment. Increased environmental protection, renewable energy, shipping, food production, the list goes on. But if we keep going the way we are, we simply run out of space. So we have a stack of guests involved in this episode to help get to grips with the situation and the current thinking. And we are certainly extremely grateful for everyone giving up their time, sharing their expertise and past experiences to help us find a better way forward. So I won't hang around here, let's get into it. Over to myself and Barry to get this started. So Barry, this is our fifth episode as an NFFO Fathom collaboration. I think it's the final one actually as well, but I'm sure we'll probably have you on again and do more with the NFFO in the future. But uh, it's certainly been a good good collaboration. We've covered off, covered off a lot of high level issues. I think today's one is one of the ones that certainly for us as a Cornish PO is, is very relevant, but obviously this is a UK wide issue and we're going to dive into all things spatial squeeze. So uh, we welcome on uh, a good bunch of guests actually. It's probably the record number of people that we've had on the podcast in one episode. So uh, really welcome all you guys on, but maybe we'll just go round round the room, round the virtual room first, just so the listeners know who we're talking to. But Barry, obviously we know you, but I'll let you start anyway, Barry, just to kick things off. Yeah, hi, hi, Chris. I'm Barry Dees. I'm Chief Executive of the NFFO. Uh, good morning, everyone. Yeah, thank you for uh, inviting me on. I'm uh, Nathan Dorosario, um, fishery consultant and sometime fisherman. Yeah, I'm Merlin Jackson. Thanks for the invite. I was inshore fishing uh, Thames Estuary until about 2008. And now I, I do a lot of fisheries liaison and a lot of engagement with uh, renewables and various projects uh, in this area. My name's Colin Warwick. I'm a retired fisherman, uh, former involvement with the NFFO in the, from its early days, currently chair flow. And obviously we work trying to build a better relationship through flow with the fishing industry. 
That's great. Thanks, everyone. We've certainly got the uh, expertise on, on today's call. So uh, look forward to diving into this in a bit more detail. Barry, I thought we would just kick off, though. Obviously, this is timely because the NFFO has recently released its spatial squeeze report, um, which obviously is really helpful to raise the profile of some of the issues, some of the challenges that we're facing and what we're going to get into today. But do you want to just kick things off um, to give a bit of context to the report? Who's involved in it? What are we trying to ad- address? What are the issues are we raising? And What's the next steps really? Where do we take this? How do we make this land and make some impact with it? I think there's been growing concern um, within the fishing industry for some time about what we're calling the spatial squeeze, the increased competition for space. The important point here is that unlike farmers, uh, fishermen don't have legal title to their production areas. And there's an assumption, has been an assumption, certainly across government, that fishing can always be shifted, can always be moved. The problem is that the scale of what's coming towards us, if we look at uh, the picture on a cumulative basis, looking at everything that's coming at us, we're looking at a very different future uh, from from the recent past. The scale of expansion of offshore wind and the acceleration of of, uh, offshore wind farms is one of the really big changes. And the other one is Uh, marine conservation uh, zones, marine protected areas of one kind or another, now cover 38% of English waters, 50% of inshore waters. And as management measures are applied uh, within those, uh, particularly to mobile gears, but not exclusively, we see the potential for displacement. Everybody seemed to be looking at their little corner, nobody looking at the big picture, certainly within government. And this is something that we raised Uh, We have raised previously, May 2021, that would be. But what we and the Scottish Fishermen's Federation thought we required was an authoritative view um, of of what's coming at us uh, in order that we can uh, be ready for it. And so we commissioned uh, the experts in the field, ABP Mayor, to prepare a, a report which they'd done, it was published uh, in June. Um, The scenarios that um, have been painted by ABP Mayor um, are that, you know, the best case scenario is that uh, fishing will lose access to about a third um, of our uh, potential fishing grounds. And the worst case scenario is we will lose close to 50%. So this is a massive change. This is an enormous challenge to the industry, to individual fishing businesses, to fishing communities, but also to fisheries management and and fisheries management plans. So this is really, really serious. What is lacking is a joined up approach across government. Everybody's looking at it with a kind of silo mentality. Our hope is that um, the the report, which has certainly been well received within DEFRA and similarly across the industry, we're very clear that um, you know, this is not the last word. Um, the, the report has its limitations. It's only looking at mobile gears. <clears throat> we know that displacement will affect static gears uh, as well, but we, you've got to start somewhere. And I think that um, we will use it um, as a platform. We will use the report as a platform to highlight the issues, to get a debate going within and across government um, that uh, helps us collectively to understand and manage the issues that are coming forward. We know that um, net zero is will always be a government priority. We understand the need for protection of biodiversity, but there's also such a thing as food security. And 
you know, what, what we are arguing for in the report is a balanced approach. And, and that's exactly what we don't have um, at the moment. We're planning uh, a parliamentary event in in October. So this is publishing the report is not the not the end of a process. In many ways, it's the beginning of a process. Thanks, Barry. That was really good. And it's just helped set the scene for what we're about to dive into in a bit more detail. And I thought a good way to do this today, welcoming all you guys onto the podcast, is if we sort of take a past, present and future approach. Obviously, Barry's just set the scene there, but there's been a huge amount of impact already that I think uh, having Merlin and Colin here, there's a wealth of experience between you guys, sort of the journey that we've been on so far, fishing's role really uh, in marine spatial planning or lack of role, should, should I say. Um, so on that note, I thought maybe Merlin, I hand to you first. Um, you've really been at the cold face of this in your local area, you know, very uh, sort of close experience with almost the worst case scenario like Barry already alluded to. So do you want to just kind of give us a bit of an insight as to your experience, other fishermen in your area, and sort of paint the picture of the past, really, which will help sort of take us forward into the into the present? I mean, the reality of the past is that the, the fishing industry was realistically not involved in any part of the process until it was too late to be involved, if you like. So uh, the point at which generally licensing or development spoke to fishermen was after the site was chosen or the cable route was chosen. Your ability to have any influence on anything at all is pretty much zero. Relied upon or relies upon, to be honest, to a great extent even now, relies upon trying very hard to create really good relationships. But you are starting from a point of being on the back foot because the ultimately an awful lot of what happens with renewable development doesn't have to take you into consideration in the way that you would hope it would so a lot of the things that um, we've been through, a lot of the, the gaps that we've seen in environmental impact assessments, in licensing, in site selection, all of these things desperately need to change. And specifically for places like the Celtic Sea, where it's going to be an entirely different challenge to say the Thames Estuary. But we have seen that um, displacement on a significant scale now. And I think even when we started, we didn't really know what to expect. I was still fishing when the first wind farms came. And I think until you actually start to be in amongst it and uh, kind of living with it on your doorstep, you do fall into that trap of thinking, oh, it's 10 years away. So it's, you know, it's, it's going to be a slow sort of uh, a gentle process in, but it's far from it. You are it, from the day it starts, it just accelerates and it becomes increasingly intense. So you you find it's not just about thinking about the site and the amount of turbines and whether you can fish in it after or what the cable route is. It's everything it brings with it. So it brings a whole host of other things. It brings the surveys, the UXO, you know, the CTV, craft, everything that just keeps going. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you look at AIS in the Thames Estuary, it's it's quite a good um, kind of visual of what that actually means to an area once once you have this uh, yeah this incredibly large fast industry on your doorstep so uh, yeah it's there's an awful lot to it and hence Colin and I spend a lot of time complaining and uh, writing to people and trying to make something change same as Barry does so yeah it's a it's a very very challenging time thanks Merlin yeah certainly uh understand your past experiences there and hopefully we can definitely learn from that but uh not taken away from the 
amount of effort you've had to put in to, to get to where you've got to and and really grateful you can share some of that with us so yeah colin uh again really welcome all of your experience and sort of past knowledge of this and how you're sort of helping us really shape up what we can do to mitigate this a bit in the future but do you want to give a bit of insight from your experience your your story really with spatial squeeze yeah thank you for the opportunity and following on, I think Barry set the where we are today. Merlin's given us an insight with the problems we face. But I would like to turn the clock back. I'm of the age that I can easily do that. It's easier to go backward and predict the, the future. Historically, the UK adopted a different approach to our European neighbours. They actually, from day one, did not allow fishing inside a wind farm. And various countries treated it in a different way. But there is, I suppose, Denmark has a statutory obligation to compensate the fishing industry over the life of its fish farm. The UK adopted a, a different approach. And it, it's, uh, the overarching policy states that fishing may resume post-construction. That in itself implies that the, it, fishing would be a planned activity but nothing could be further from the truth. It's actually a bit of a misnomer. It's a whitewash smokescreen that we've suffered uh, over, well, for the last 22 years. It, and, and we have to recognize that none of us that was around any of the tables of the Federation at that particular time, nobody ever saw the two turbines off my native uh, coastline in Northumberland would lead to where we are now 22 years later, where we have industrialization of the seafloor uh, aided and abetted by our government and the Crown Estate. But be under no illusions, or everybody involved has actually got the finger in the pot. The Crown Estate is, is earning, you know, he's, he's doing exactly the same as the fishermen are trying to do, is earn a percentage of their income off the sea floor. That's no different to the fishermen, but actually, in reality, it's Peter stopping Paul making his living. Now, the developers, and I don't blame them for where we've ended up, but they haven't actually, there was no guidelines, was it? Fishing may resume. So the designer wind farm that suits them, that practice carries on till today where we are saying if we were part of that plan and promotion, we wouldn't have ended up with wind farms on the richest grounds simply because there were shallow banks, but banks were synonymous with fishing. So there was a total lack of any basic understanding how the industry used the sea and the sea floor to earn its living. And that's compounded today, as Barry says, with the and further expansion into wind. So what can we do about it? I think we need to take stock of where we've arrived at and how we arrived at and what is possibly the, the most significant missing element is the fact that of all the sea users, if you take the Chamber of Shipping, the Royal Yachting Association and the fishing industry, two are statutory consultees and one isn't. And I believe that's that basic lack of involvement with the fishing industry from day one that needs to change. That will give us some leverage going forward. So it's not doom and gloom. And, and we're not saying we don't 
recognize the need for offshore wind energy. But what we're saying, it has to be on a, a, a joint approach. We have to be part of that process going forward. Thanks, Colin. <clears throat> Couldn't agree with you more. I think you're bang on. Um, it's just having that seat at the table early on in the marine planning process to be recognized as a credible user of the sea. So that is the simple campaign message, really, isn't it? That is the question that we take from here. So thanks both. That's good. Really good to paint the picture of the past. And I think obviously this is being sort of built into some of the work that the NFFO have been doing over the last year. Um, I'll come on to you in a minute, Nathan, but obviously this virtual planning process that's been set up and kicked off at the end of 2021 and rolled into the earlier part of this year really gave some good uh, insights, I suppose, from all stakeholders, from energy developers, the fishing industry, um, and just bringing in that experience at that point to try and shape something up a bit different in the future. But I won't say too much because I want to hand over to Nathan now just to sort of things that we've learned from the past, how can we change that? And Nathan, you know, in terms of this virtual planning process, can you just give us a bit of insight to that and what the outcomes of that are and how we're going to try and implement that now going forward? Yeah, so thanks, Chris. I mean, I think um, the, the work we've been sort of involved with in the last sort of six to eight months has been really recognising the uh, size and scale of ambition of, of offshore wind from government, but also the developers is going to take us into a whole new ball game, if you like, kind of uncharted waters. So a lot of the work in the North Sea um, has been around kind of fixed wind, but to really scale up to the types of numbers in terms of energy production um, that we'll need to meet net zero. There's this um, much further offshore, much bigger turbines of floating wind. And that's a whole new era. And it's although it's very much in, a, in an experimental phase, so it's it's difficult for everyone, you know, because we don't really know um, what that will look like. It's emerging technology. Um, but I was asked last year by Colin and Merlin, as you said, who have, you know, kind of over a decade experience of working with developers. They asked me to get involved in a project um, along with Crown Estate and also um, three of the developers who who were very keen, you know, they're obviously coming at this from the other side and, you know, they can also see that that there is significant challenge. Um, you know, they don't, um, you know, they recognise that fishing exists and they recognise that going into an area like the Celtic Sea is really the engine room of kind of English fisheries now. It's where, you know, the, the, the vast amount of, of catch by value comes from. Um, and so we had this idea of a, um, a kind of, virtual planning exercise to involve all the different stakeholders that are currently involved in the decision making to to see how we'd kind of plan for real but in a in a environment where let's say it, it kind of wasn't real so it's almost kind of gaming um a gaming approach to it um to see really what was possible in the way of coexistence coexistence is if you like the holy grail <laughs> obviously if everyone can carry on doing what they're doing and accommodate each other that's great. You know, we all, we all walk away as winners. So we had a series of three workshops. And then we started at the end of, of 2021 and had two more um, in 2022, which we hosted in London and also down in Newlyn with a range of different um, static gear, mobile gear skippers, in, particularly in the offshore space. And that was great because we were able to tap into knowledge Certainly in one case in the beam trawling that's passed down to like two generations since the kind of dawning of beam trawling in the Southwest. So uh, I think an unprecedented amount of sharing of information and of knowledge. To summarise, I think 
what we came to the conclusion was that I think for both static gear and mobile gear, there's a difference between what's theoretically possible to fish inside of a potential floating offshore wind farm, but what is the reality of how vessels need to fish in a more practical sense. So in an absolute theoretical sense, yeah, potentially, you know, there could be um, some fishing, but it just wouldn't be commercially viable in the sense that, you know, once you're in an area, boats have to move, um, they have to be able to come around with the tide, could be other vessels in the area. Um, so there was, a, you know, very well-reasoned, I think, points that came from the skippers themselves as to really why, even for both types of gear, it'd be very difficult to see how coexistence um, could be achieved. And I think the result, if you like, from the fisherman's point of view was really to urge the smallest possible footprint. So actually these areas should almost be kind of no fishing areas just because so much uncertainty around kind of anchor patterns and everything else that they should be as small as possible um, and therefore obviously minimise the economic impact to the industry. And um, so I think that's that's where we left that. And I think, as Colin said, you know, there has to be, we really do need to have a sensible conversation around um, loss of earning potential because that's what we're talking about. You know, fish have a habit of moving. You know, we've seen kind of cuttlefish move in in the last 20 years and and who who would have known they would have come onto those grounds? So it's all very well, you know, using past performance. Uh, and as we always read the small print, you can't always go on what's happened in the past to understand what the future of fishing might look like. So um, I think the stakes are really high here. And and where I see we're lacking is we obviously don't have the, the high-level clout at this stage that we ultimately need. And I think Barry's right. You know, it really needs to be pushed up the political agenda and much more focus around that sort of food security angle, which um, I think is uh, is the, is the really key point that people are, uh, don't seem to understand. Cool. Thanks, Nathan. Good to get an insight into what that process is. And having been in the room myself, certainly a lot of value to doing that. Like you say, huge amounts of information being shared from people that really know these fishing grounds and understand what's happened in the past. But yeah, totally understand what you're saying as well. We can't really predict the future. We need to keep open-minded as to what might might be happening out there, what might change looking forward. Um, Barry, I forgot your co-host. <laughs> haven't given you a chance to say anything again, but I don't know, do, do you want to come in there? Do you want to sort of respond to what Merlin, Colin <clears throat> just mapped out before we sort of look f- further forward again? Yeah, well, these guys are the, the experts. The focus in this discussion so far has been on the expansion of, of wind farms, and we, we know what the political drivers are there. But... Equally, almost as significant um, is marine protected areas and the potential for displacement there. So, again, it's the need to look at the picture in the round um, and for government to begin to look at at the picture in the round and develop policies in in dialogue with the fishing industry. I think uh, that our early warnings prior to the report have alerted certainly uh, DEFRA to the the, the the scale of change and the potential for disruption uh, that's coming towards us. And I, I do understand that there is work going on behind doors within DEFRA, within the MMO, um, within CFAS. Um, <clears throat> so far, that's not been shared with us, um, but there is there is a need for that, that dialogue. In the meantime, I think it's uh, incumbent upon us to <clears throat> raise the political awareness of, of this uh, problem 
Uh, we, we have uh, requested a meeting with the Secretary of State, whoever that will be, and <clears throat> we uh, are engaged in a discussion with the head of marine spatial planning within the MMO. Um, marine spatial planning has got a critically important role to play here, but it has to be joined up across government, um, at, which it's not at the moment. As I mentioned earlier, we, we have a parliamentary event so that parliamentarians of all uh, hues can understand uh, what's at stake here for the fishing industry. There is a new approach within marine spatial planning developing, which is uh, prioritisation. Up until now, uh, the role of marine spatial planning has to, been to balance all the different interests, recognising that that's quite a challenge. There is now uh, prioritisation has become the, the, the buzzword meaning that some there'll be a hierarchy and some activities will be privileged over other activities. Our fear, of course, is that fishing will be at the end of the queue here and that climate change, uh, net zero and protection of biodiversity will take priority. That will all change when, uh, you know, as we've seen, there are, there are fears about uh, food security, which is why um, I think we need to be in the discussion about the protection of our food production areas. You know, I think that is the way that we can um, elbow our way in, into, into the dialogue, into, into the discussion. So, uh, and, and a starting point would, would be to make uh, the fishing industry organisation statutory consultees, so that at least we have an equal um, seat at, at the table in, in the dialogue going forward. To, to reiterate, I suppose, the scale of what is coming towards us is just different from anything that we'd envisaged before. It's the scale that is different. And, uh, you know, when you combine offshore wind with um, the potential for displacement from marine protected areas, I've been involved this week in six discussions about uh, highly protected marine areas and offshore marine areas, uh, marine protected areas. There's a huge amount of change coming towards us, but government hasn't walk, woken up yet to the potential for displacement and what that will mean. Yeah, thanks, Barry. Really good to bring out those points around marine protected areas as well. Having spoken with all of our members or a good number of our members that are going to be affected by uh, this development in the Celtic Sea, it's the same guys that are going to be affected by the review of marine protected areas. So I think there was a call for evidence earlier on in the summer. There's six sites in the southwest and it's again, it's impacting on that same part of the fleet so there is a real concern and that indirectly affects everybody just because of displacement so uh, it's that sort of unintended consequence question that always comes up with anything like this um, which i know we're always trying to keep at the forefront of our minds as we work through it i mean if um, i could just uh, uh, butt in there on unintended consequences you know, there's a very clear example uh, that we're seeing already um, with the ifcas the role of IFCAS has changed profoundly because you know, 50% of inshore waters are marine protected areas and undertaking the assessments for these in order to keep the fisheries open within these areas now occupy most of, of IFCAS time and resource. And the implication of that is uh, a de uh, degrading the fisheries management role that IFCAS previously uh, performed. That's a concern with some IFCAS, and I'm not saying that it's the same picture all around the, the country, but there's an example of an unintended consequence from, I mean, in this case, it's government policy um, that, that has got, again, really profound implications for the fishing industry. 
Yeah, thanks, Barry. I think, I mean, we, we've certainly delved into a bit of looking forward into the future. Um, and that is our final point, really, just to kind of bring together everybody as part of this last piece of the conversation. I mean, looking forward, obviously, is a simple question from us, but probably a complicated way to get there into this fishing becoming this statutory stakeholder. But that opens up lots of opportunity for us to at least start influencing things earlier on in the process. But I don't know, Nathan, Colin, Merlin, between you guys and Barry, I mean, how realistic is that question? Do you think we can kind of get there? What have we got to do? How do we suit up to to make this request and make it stick? Uh, I think Barry just touched on food security. Uh, certainly is some part of our argument, really. But I know raising this previously, sometimes we get the response that, well, okay, a lot of seafood's exported. How do you sort of make it stick? But um, you know, recognizing that importance still from an economic point of view, surely there's there's a there's a point to be made there. But yeah, open the floor to you guys just to kind of come into this fu- looking forward into the future part of the conversation. Well, if you, if, you, if you don't mind, I'll come in. I mean, I think you know, in the you know, in the recent past, maybe a few years ago, you know, prior to the to the Brexit agreement, you know, fishing had a, a level of public awareness and support that was I don't think I've ever seen in my um, thirty seven years of like being involved in the industry. So I guess we need to to relearn to to sort of capture that kind of level of support because with that level of support i do believe anything would be possible you know it was, it was um totally unprecedented you know fishing really was the kind of poster boy for the whole uh, or girl uh for the whole brexit campaign and i think i think that's interesting i think the other thing as well i think this is a at least a twin track um strategy the other side is we really need to be pushing for a much more sort of mature approach to uh, marine special planning. I think it's one of the points that you know was raised at your AGM recently is that you know there has to be much greater ability for co-location. We just don't have enough room for everything. As Barry said, you know, eventually if we do everything we want to in the marine space, we're going to run out. There won't be anything and and, and boats will be tied up. And um you know it's clear that some of these areas around um offshore wind are going to be effective. Uh, no-go areas and you know we really need to get that understanding that these are actually going to be highly protected marine areas by another name and let's get recognition of that so we can at least you know co-locate and minimize the impacts rather than try and have this i think unachievable kind of patchwork quilt yeah i agree with barry and and nathan exactly to be honest i think the bit that is is really apparent from here is that the entire system for certainly for renewables planning is not fit for purpose. And so whichever part of, you know, starting from the top, if you get the top bit right, the rest becomes easier and it starts to make sense. And at the moment, the top bit is so far from right that for the fishing industry, it it really makes very little sense at all. I mean, what's happening this year is the first kind of trickle of movement towards listening to fisheries and understanding more. And that really began with the virtual project. But outside of that, I'm still dealing with projects that are dealing with things exactly the same way that they were 10 or 15 years ago, because the process hasn't changed. And I think that that has to be something that the fishing industry has to take to government, exactly as Barry says. I think it's not it's not time to wait for it to happen. You know, the Thames Estuary and the East Coast were low-hanging fruit to some extent for, for wind development and for interconnectors, and that's going to change now. It's going to affect a very different group of fishermen who are catching a very different amount of fish and, and realistically far more important ground. So I think it's government, it is DEFRA, it is the MMO, and it is the Crown. And it's keeping onto those 
bodies who actually make the difference at the beginning. Once you get to the point of dealing with a developer, most of the biggest decisions are already made. And that at that point, you've kind of, you've lost, you, you still end up fighting for other bits, but uh, you need that initial government level special planning position at the table to be a part of all of those conversations. And at the moment, it just isn't there, unfortunately. I'm not you know, super negative about that. We do win little victories now and again. They are quite small in comparison, but um, there is some small amount of effort to actually listen. And I think we need to take advantage of that now and really, you know, bar the door open further now. Wise words, Merlin. I'll hand over to Colin for some more wisdom. I don't know about wisdom. It's funny, but Boris should mention highly protected areas, marine protected areas. I've just read the publication on the one off my native Northumberland coast. It makes grim reading if you're a 20-year-old fisherman. It doesn't matter what fishery you are. But I'm also aware, just sitting outside of that area, the Crown Estate have got their eye on a piece of ground to put a floating wind farm. And I don't think the two people know one what the other's doing. If the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, you're always going to get confusion. We've all we're banged on about being a statutory consultee. And it's quite interesting. It was raised at one of the meetings we held with the fishermen in the Celtic Sea area. And the response from the Crown at the time, it wouldn't make have made any difference. Well, I disagree with that. Because Chamber of Shipping would consult with, they actually shaped those boxes. We've come on board after those boxes of big search areas have been identified. And we've been given a very short timetable to put our comments back in. But actually, if we'd been in the same pro at the same table at the same time as the uh, Chamber of Shipping, those boxes would have been already shaped. We're adding bureaucracy into the system for no rhyme nor reason. And that is, and, and the public isn't really aware. You can't imagine that a land-based system, which was caused by a planning application in Rochdale, as far away from the sea as you can get, actually becomes the norm for gaining planning permission for offshore wind farms. The Rochdale envelope allows the developer to gain consent to build a wind farm without any details being provided. So that just endorses the actually no-nonsense approach that has grown up with offshore wind because there was no guidelines. The fishing industry had been a consultee, a statutory consultee. We would have objected from that from day one. Backtracking to a point that Nathan made about making the offshore wind farm for floating as small as we can. We did put a counter argument in that if the turbines were three kilometers apart, we could fish in them. But that was deemed uneconomical from the developers. And I would suggest that developers have actually planned things that actually are uneconomical for the fishing industry to fish in. So it's not a level playing field, it's far from it. They're the basic attitudes that are the building blocks to build our case for become a statutory consultee. We'll have to use what we know and, and highlight it in a way that actually and, and educate the public. It's a, a mythical notion. It's, it's green and it comes for free. It doesn't come from for free. 
that steel constructions, they already have a massive carbon footprint, and yet when they switch them on, all that's done away with. We need a touch of reality across all the sections and actually somebody in government, and it, it has to come from government. They're the only people that can change the rules. Whether they'll have an appetite for listening at the present time, that's for us to articulate that they should. Because if they don't, we're on a collision course, and it'll mean ports like Newland will suffer financially. They're already, you know, it's a £50 million industry. They shouldn't suffer it that just to allow somebody else to make a little bit more money selling this electric that we can't afford. Thanks, Colin. Uh, Barry, do you want to come in now? You know, clearly we understand um, that what is coming down the road in terms of offshore wind and marine protected areas is, is our problem. It's a displacement problem. But I also think that it's a problem for the government when there's a recognition uh, of, of what it's going to mean. The, the spatial squeeze report makes a distinction between best case scenario and worst case scenario. Uh, you know, none of them are good. Um, but I think that that's what we have to focus on, minimizing the, the, the impact of what's coming down the line at us. Because if we don't, uh, this is a joint problem. This is a problem for the fishing industry, but it's also a problem for government in terms of chaotic uh, management of the marine space, chaotic fisheries management. I can't see how the fisheries management plans that so much effort is going into at the moment will work if the future is so different from the past in terms of where we can where we can fish. The, the solution um, does lie with effective marine uh, plans, marine spatial planning. And I think um, that, you know, that has an important role to play. In many cases, the plans are not bad. The words are there, but it's, it's how they're implemented. This loops back to, ultimately loops back to the dialogue that, that is necessary between the fishing industry and the developers, the Crown Estates, the statutory uh, nature conservation advisors, uh, and all branches of government. This needs to be about balance. You know, we, we know we're not going to hold back efforts to reduce zero net carbon. And indeed, we don't want to. Um, and we, we recognise there is a need to have marine protected areas. It's how you do it is the key. It's how you do it, um, whilst at the same time providing uh, production areas for fishing. So I think we have got no alternative as an industry, as a federation, uh, to maintain maximum pressure to get the whole issue of displacement to the top of the political agenda. I would also um, just finally say, you know, we, our report only looks at UK vessels, but of course, <clears throat> uh, certainly until 2026, maybe beyond, uh, there is uh, access for European fleets, for Norwegian fleets on an annual basis. What's happening in their waters has a potential displacement effect as well. Offshore wind and marine protected areas also happening in EU uh, member state waters. That has a potential to displace vessels into UK waters. So, you know, this is um, a national, local, but also international issue that needs to be addressed. Thanks. Thanks, Barry. It's a really good just way to sort of summarise. I think it's the more I think about it and listening to you guys, it's this, this underpins everything and is such a priority piece of work and issue to address before we get caught up in the detail of fish, fisheries management plans and everything else that 
happens around that. There's a lot of energy and work going on there, but everything could be meaningless based on what we're looking at in the report and the sort of best to worst case scenarios kind of could knock things quite quickly out, out the way. Um, taking our regional uh, view of this, looking at the Celtic Sea, uh, if you wipe out that kind of area really from energy production and push fishing effort or displace it around to the south coast, then what does that mean for I don't know, the non-quota species fisheries management plan? You can't just take that, and from a quota point of view, you can't just take that quota out of that, that area and put it somewhere else. That has all so many other implications that people need to think about here. So I think getting fishing in line in that early part of planning is clearly our, our request and it's, it's our piece of work to, to bring to the top. I, I will finish with one thought. Um, I mean, if you, if you certainly take a look at the, um, the energy developers press and communications around this development, there's, there's obviously a lot of excitement, a lot of energy going into this. And they're certainly seeing this as, in the Celtic Sea as a stepping stone to some much bigger development. So um, the need to get involved now and the need for government to really pay attention to this is obviously prime. Um, I suppose as an industry, we, we probably need to make more noise about how important that fishing ground is uh, and do we need to convert that into what the energy developers talk about they talk about how many likes they're going to keep on at home in the winter months the we as a fishing industry need to remind people of how many mouths we're going to feed with highly nutritious low carbon source of protein from the ocean so i think that's probably our thing again to get on with and remind people of what's going on out there at sea anyway that's just my throwaway at the end just to just to kind of tail off but Thanks, everyone. Really good to have everybody on the call today. Lots of good experience, good expertise, and I'm sure it will spark a few questions. Maybe we'll do a follow-up in, in a few months' time and see where we're getting to with all this work. But uh, thank you very much. This episode was brought to you by the Cornish Fish Producers Organisation with support from the National Federation of Fishermen's Organisations. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. 